Today's uh, sermon text is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man come, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who believed belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom, of, kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the, son him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what, do you, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. 
There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. But when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well done, Bredenhoff. Thank you very much. There's a little bit there. There's a little bit there. <clears throat> it's actually been said, even if the preaching in a church is terrible, that if during the service the scriptures were read, it can still be profitable to get together. So it's just been said. <laughs> I'm hopeful that that doesn't come to mind in the rest of uh, our time together here this morning. Uh, Frank Morrison, uh, English writer, 20th century, middle of the 20th century, he set out to write a paper called Jesus, The Last Phase. And the purpose of the paper was to disprove the resurrection. Morrison believed that if he could disprove the resurrection, then he could disprove Christianity. That if the resurrection was not true, then Christianity wouldn't be true. That Christianity rises or falls on the validity of the resurrection. Would you agree with that premise? Is the, re is the resurrection really that important? Must it be historically true for Christianity to be true? I'm sure you caught it in the midst of that reading of 58 verses. Paul said in verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Frank Morrison was exactly right. If he or anyone else could disprove the resurrection, then not only is Jesus dead, 
But Christianity is dead as well. Timothy Keller, in his brilliant book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, put it this way, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. This morning, we are concluding our series in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We, we, we started this in September, and our approach to the letter of 1 Corinthians was not to go through every verse from beginning to end, but was to look at this letter issue by issue that Paul was addressing in this first century church in the city called Corinth. There, were, there was disunity going on. There were divisions. There were issues, things he wanted to address. And so our approach in this series since September has been look at, tackle, address every issue that Paul addressed in this first century church because lo and behold, it's still really, really helpful to us here now in the 21st century church. So this final issue that Paul wants to address in this letter to the Corinthians is this. The fact that there were Christians in Corinth denying the resurrection of the dead. So as the final issue that he wants to address in the letter, this is our final series in, or final message in this series. And here's how we're going to look at it, because this is a little unorthodox for us. We usually go a few verses at a time and, and really look closely. We're actually going to try and follow rather this morning um, Paul's line of, of thinking and argumentation in this chapter, 58 verses, how he's addressing this issue of the resurrection of the dead. And so we're just going to kind of trace it, uh, trace the argument as opposed to look, look at every verse closely. I mean, we can, but... We'll be here till next week. So let's go this way instead. First, here's the outline. Jesus Christ rose in the past, verses 1 to 11. Secondly, those in Christ will rise in the future. This is where he goes, verses 12 to 34. Thirdly, we'll look at the nature of resurrection bodies. What will they be like? Verses 35 to the end. And then kind of as a summary, we'll look at the resurrection changes, how we live, and how is that? So first, Jesus Christ rose in the past. I'll pick it up in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, it's interesting. This is what the Apostle Paul, this, this set of verses here, what he's unpacking is what he calls of first importance. Of first, what's of first importance? Well, the gospel proper like those essential parts of Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins and Jesus rose victorious over death. This, Paul says, is of first importance. Now, in the last number of weeks, we've been talking about like orderly worship in church, and it matters. It matters, right? The church should be unified, and we kind of need to have a, have a roadmap. What, what's it supposed to look like? How are we to act? What, how should things go? Like, this is really, really helpful for us, and so therefore it matters, but we can call a lot 
of what's said in Scripture, kind of secondary, important, but secondary issues. It's, it's been said that, that what we hold in the clenched fist, like we cannot lose our grip on, is, is the gospel, the, the, the core tenets of the faith. And then we kind of hold in this open hand, hospitably, kindly, warmly, generously with one another, lively discussion from time to time I hear in church about some of these secondary things, right? We hold that in an open hand, though. Clenched fist, the gospel, and the core tenets of the faith, and in this open-handedness we have towards some of the workings out of this faith. I think it's really important. If you're exploring faith in Jesus, right, you're going to hear um, sermons and talk in the church about all sorts of issues. I just want to laser focus you. I invite you to wrestle with Jesus the person, his life, death, and resurrection. Just, just root yourself there because it's only in encountering Jesus himself that like a lot of the stuff we talk about in church will kind of find its place. Oh, I, okay, that's how that works itself out. But to start with some of the implications or the practice, it, it can really be, in fact, discouraging sometimes where it doesn't make a lot of sense unless you have come to believe in Jesus. So this, this core, this, 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 this first importance that Paul's talking about, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, three days later, and he appeared so after saying that he died on the cross, it says, according to the scriptures, and after he rose three days, it says, according to the scriptures. What Paul wants us to see is that um, this was always God's plan of redemption. Like God had always planned it this way. The Old Testament is talking about this fulfillment of God's plan. The Old Testament is God's plan foretold in the gospel itself. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus, after the resurrection, appeared to the apostles and even more than 500 people at once. He goes on to say, most of whom are still alive. Why does he say that? Because he wants the Corinthian church to truly believe that Jesus rose. That it's not just some sort of like poetic story, like Jesus was put down, but he got up again and so can you. It's this literal, historical, Jesus died and rose more than 400 people, 500 people saw him at once. Most of them are still alive. In other words, this is verifiable. Go ask them. Go ask them. This is historically true. Now, um, there are, of course, a lot of arguments against the resurrection of Jesus. And I, I, I've shared this in the past, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but just really, really quickly, I, 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 Paul's getting at the fact that the literal resurrection of Jesus happened. So I just want to touch on these. There are uh, four dominant arguments against the resurrection, and here's what they are. The first is that the body was stolen. The body of Jesus was stolen. Therefore, he never rose. The body was stolen. This kind of makes sense. If you were to read the gospel accounts, Mary Magdalene arrives on what we now know as Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, to go to the tomb. And when she arrives, the stone has been removed. The body is not there. She runs off and tells the disciples, so they've taken him. So this is kind of a, a this, this is a natural response. Jesus' body has been taken. Now, historically, the belief is the Christians, the followers of Jesus are the ones who stole the body. Because then the myth can live on. We remove the body, we hide it, we say that he rose, they can't find the body. That's how Christianity lives on. But if Christianity then was just an elaborate hoax, there's a few things that, that don't really make a lot of sense with this theory. One is that um, if it's all a myth 
and the Gospels, the four Gospels are written in, in years following. Um, what you don't do if you're the leaders of this elaborate hoax, and the leaders of the Christian faith, you don't let the Gospels be written where you just look like a bunch of idiots, just to put it frankly. Like if you read the Gospels over and over, the disciples are just saying dumb stuff and not getting it. So if it's all hoax and you're manufacturing this thing, you usually don't make yourself look really dumb. Like I'll give you an example. Jesus is giving this message about the first will be last and the last will be first. You ought to be the servant of all, Jesus says. And like literally right after, a couple of his disciples walk up and be like, in glory, like who's going to sit on your right and who's going to sit on your left in prominence? Like right after, they're just like, like they just look like you don't get it. Something else, if this was an elaborate hoax, the body was stolen, this was manufactured, here's another way that you wouldn't tell the story. They wouldn't have had women be the first to discover the tomb. That sounds um, terrible to say in our context, but we have to remember that in, in, in first century, um, in this context, uh, even women's uh, testimony in court wasn't considered verifiable. It didn't count as evidence. Terrible as that is, that was the reality. So if you're manufacturing the story, you don't have the first ones to discover the empty tomb be women. Because a bunch of people in their context will be like, well, that doesn't add up, right? Thirdly, they wouldn't all die without recanting their elaborate hoax. If they know they've stolen the body, that this isn't true, and then their lives are put on the line, in fact, they're martyred for their faith, Someone is going to be like, okay, 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 but none of them did. Another dominant argument against the resurrection is not only that the body was stolen, another one is that they went to the wrong tomb. And some of us giggle about this a little bit, like they went to the wrong tomb, right? Like that's ridiculous. But, but I'm talking about like PhD uh, thesis, theses are written about things like these. Books are written about um, these kinds of arguments. They went to the wrong tomb. The idea is that they were so distraught in their grief that the women followed by the disciples went to the wrong tomb. They went to the place they thought the body was, but there was never a body there. It was a vacant tomb. And so when they go, assuming that it's Jesus' tomb and it's vacant, they assume he's risen. The problem with that is, like, as Christianity is, like, spreading like wildfire, if the, the, the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders want to snuff out Christianity, they go, actually, you know what? Jesus is lying two tombs over. He's right here, you guys. But that never happened. Not only uh, that, the, uh, another dominant argument against the resurrection is they hallucinated the resurrection. The idea behind this is that, of course, these followers of Jesus who love him so much, had placed all their hope in him, were so traumatized, so filled with grief and exhausted that they hallucinated his resurrection. Some of the issues that have been brought forward uh, against this theory is that Jesus appeared not to just a few people, but as we see in our text this morning, hundreds of people. And there isn't much evidence at all for group hallucinations like that. Even with all the drugs, like in our modern <laughs> times, there's still not evidence for mass hallucinations such as that. Fourth, dominant argument and the most popular one is, it's called the swoon theory. And this is what my wife Emily does over me still, just many years into marriage. It's sort of a swoon. <laughs> yeah. She's just like... Mm. 
Uh, this theory has had the most traction over the centuries. It's the official position of Islam, and it's the position most common among atheists. It's the claim that Jesus didn't really die, uh, but passed out, didn't resurrect so much as come to. So this position is held because the claims made by people who say they saw Jesus after his res- resurrection, his, after his crucifixion, are historically difficult to deny. That for those who, who consider they, they want to be intellectually honest as historians are saying, I have to do something with this. And so this position doesn't try to deny the many accounts of the witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. But a number of other historians will look and say, okay, you're you're recognizing that there's so much data, so much historical data. The historicity of a resurrected Jesus is is so, um, so massive. Other historians come along and say, but here's the problem with such a theory. If there's one thing that Roman soldiers knew how to do in the first century, it was how to kill people. Specifically, how to crucify people. It wasn't a regular pattern for Roman soldiers to crucify someone and then that person later go home for lunch. It just, it wasn't how it worked. It's not plausible that they not only accidentally didn't kill him, but listen, but that mere hours later he could walk around and interact with people in such a way that it appeared like he was fine. I won't get into the details of skin ripped off his back, right, and, and the blood loss and a spear piercing the heart sack, which like blood and water poured out. But mere hours later, to have swooned and then appeared as if healed to his disciples less than 48 hours later is an absolute impossibility. Now, when we spend a little time talking apologetically about apologetics, like defenses for the faith for a few minutes like this, my my attempt is never to, to come anywhere close to trying to prove Christianity to anybody. To follow Jesus will always require faith. But here's what I am saying. I want to show you that it doesn't just take faith to believe in the resurrection, it really truly does also require faith not to believe it. It really does. And so I want to invite you to doubt your doubts. The historical data about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is overwhelming. This is what H.G. Wells, 20th century writer, said. I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably irrevocably the very center of not fantasy, but history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. That was a 20th century historian. Here's a first century historian named Josephus, not a Christian, but a Jewish historian and writer who wrote about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he, he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ, which means anointed one. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared." Back to Frank Morrison. When, when, what Frank Morrison intended to be a paper disproving the resurrection, 
It wound up becoming a book entitled, Who Moved the Stone? Defending the Historicity of the Resurrection. Morrison set out to disprove the resurrection, but as he studied the evidence, he found out that the evidence disproved him. He came to faith in the resurrected Jesus, and his life was dramatically transformed by the resurrection. And this isn't a story unique to Frank Morrison. This is C.S. Lewis's story, 20th century scholar. This is Josh McDowell's story, who was a law student at the time when he began to research the resurrection of Jesus as a skeptic. J. Werner Wallace, who was a cold case detective, uh, he set out to, to show that the resurrection was bogus, and he wound up coming to Christ. Simon Green, the, the noted Harvard law professor, went to set out to disprove the resurrection and wound up coming to faith. Probably most famously, Lee Strobel has the same story. He was an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune. He set out to write a piece uh, disproving the resurrection and wound up writing a book called The Case for Christ. See, Oftentimes, Christianity gets dubbed as, as anti-intellectual, right? And I recognize that there are, there are a bunch of anti, anti-intellectual Christians on Facebook, granted. But, but I just want to just for a moment say th- this kind of history and these kinds of, this kind of scholarship shows, shows quite the opposite. Christianity isn't anti-intellectualism. It's quite the opposite. These are people sincerely, honestly trying to follow, figure out the facts and having the facts stare them in the face and and them say, I believe. A very intellectual exercise where they encountered Christ. See, the resurrection of Jesus in the past is the beginning of the argument that Paul is making in our passage this morning for the resurrection of the dead in the future. Let's pick it up. Those in Christ will rise in the future. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. What Paul is doing is he's intrinsically tying these two things. Jesus rose, and therefore that means you will rise, Christian. You will have a resurrection body. Jesus was resurrected in the past. That's your guarantee that you will have a resurrection body in the future. Verses 12 and 13 show the tie that Paul is making to this. And then he goes on to flesh out in the next number of verses an argument of if he hasn't been raised, but since he has been raised argument. If he hasn't been raised, all of this. If he has been raised, all of this. So let me map that out for you. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, Paul says, gospel preaching is in vain and our faith is useless. We see this in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He goes on, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, the apostles are liars. In verse 15, we see we are even, that's the apostles, found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Fourth, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then there is no assurance of forgiveness of sins. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Next, he says, if Jesus has not been raised, 
believers who have already died are lost rather than enjoying eternal life. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And finally, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, he says, Christians are the most pitiable people on the planet. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied if Jesus has not been raised. But he goes on, look what he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So since, let's, just, let's do a little parallel thing here. Since Jesus has been raised from the dead, that means gospel preaching is of value. Yes, I still have a job. Excellent. Great. No, what this means is that like proclaiming this news matters. Telling people about the essence of the faith, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, matters and is so important, whoever we are. This is news that must be shared. And also, faith in the gospel message preached is of supreme value. If this is true, then we need to tell it. We need to hear it. We need to believe it. It matters Greatly, since Jesus has been raised from the dead, the apostles are not liars, they are trustworthy. They're the ones who tell us that Jesus rose and the implications of it. And if those words are true, then we should give our lives to studying them and applying them to our lives. They are trustworthy voices. And since Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. Praise God. And since Jesus has been raised from the dead, believers who have died are with God in glory. And finally, since Jesus has been raised from the dead, Christians are recipients of the greatest news on the planet, not to be pitied by all, but with a message to share to all. See, Paul wants us to see this intrinsic tie. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee for the resurrection for those who belong to Jesus. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This word first fruits uh, is a reference to the first of a crop. And if the first fruits are good, it is a sign that the rest of the crop will be good. So dairy farmer in our church and they decided that um, for their kids to just make a little extra money, they'd, they'd grow some corn, and then they would sell the corn, and the kids could have the money from selling the corn. Well, they planted a cornfield, and the corn grew, and they tested out the first ear of corn, the first fruits, if, the first veggies, if you will, and they tried the corn. It was terrible, so they just mowed it down and fed it to the cows. But see, God's plan was not only that Jesus would be raised but that he would be the first fruits of God's greater plan of resurrection. Jesus died in the past, and Jesus rose in the past as the first fruits of those who will rise. In other words, the Christian doctrine of resurrection doesn't only refer to Jesus being raised in the past, but that believers will be raised in the future. So a natural question at this point, and this is where Paul goes next, is what will that be like? So let's look at it, the nature of resurrection bodies, verses 35 onward. He starts to talk about this continuity and discontinuity that exists, 
right? Same things, different things, things transforming from this to that. He does some talk about that. I think just for the sake of time, we're going to let, let verses 42 to 44 be our summary here of a picture of the nature of resurrection bodies. Verse 42 says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. A lot of key words in here that he's doing of the continuity and discontinuity. And I just want to show it to you. He starts by saying that what is sown is perishable. In other words, it will not last. Our natural bodies are perishable and they will not last. And they are sown in dishonor, he says. And what's mean there is that we use our natural bodies to sin. We are born into sin. We are intrinsically sinners. And by our nature and with our natural bodies, we sin. And so the, the dishonor in the body is that we use it to sin. Our bodies are also sown in weakness, meaning that it breaks. It breaks. Uh, I, I helped coach one of my son's hockey teams, and uh, partway through the practice yesterday, like my hip just like really started hurting on the ice, and I was barely doing anything. I was like, sta- I was doing the coach thing, like standing mostly, barking orders, you know, that kind of thing. And my, like my hip hurt, and I came home and I told Emily, like, oh man, my hip. And she just kind of looked at me and I assume she was just thinking, this is like the next 40 years of my life. Like hearing the ailments, you know? Okay, another ailment. Great. But, but you're familiar with this, right? You're familiar with this. Like our bodies are sown in weakness, meaning what? It breaks down. It's depressing, eh? Our best days are behind us. Unless you believe in the resurrection, they're still ahead of us. If there is a natural body, he says, and when he says natural, he means that what's natural, look around at the planet, look at everything. Natural means death and decay are inevitable. Are there a lot of good traits in it? Oh, you bet. Is there beauty? Yes. But by its very definition, nature itself is given to death and decay. They are inevitable. But he runs these other words about the imperishable. He runs these other words about what resurrection, res- resurrection bodies will be like. So he says, yes, it's sown perishable, but it will be raised imperishable, meaning eternal. Where the, where the perishable body will not last, the imperishable body will. Sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. Where our our natural bodies, we use it to sin in glory. They will perfectly image God's design. They are sown in weakness, but will be raised in power. Yes, our natural bodies break down, but resurrected bodies won't. That is incredible. If there is a natural body, death and decay are inevitable. He goes on to say there is also a spiritual body where death and decay are no more. Isn't that glorious? A world without ruin, a body without decay. I was talking to a a family member yesterday who's been sick for months and just trying to figure out what's going on. And my family member said to me, I can't remember what it was like to feel normal. 
And I know some of you relate to that. I mean, having the privilege of being a pastor in this church, I get to visit with many of you when you're sick, when you're hurting. Sickness, ailments, all these kinds of things. Death, inevitable, all of it. And just these thoughts that plague our minds. I can't remember what it felt like to be normal. In verse 52, Paul says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Look, I I just invite those of you exploring faith in Jesus ask you this question. Have you placed your hope in the resurrected Jesus? Because what's being said here is the perishable cannot put on the imperishable. Flesh and blood, verse 50, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Left to our own devices, we do not inherit the imperishable. Our mortal bodies don't take on immortality. We need Jesus, the one who rose so that we might rise. Do you trust him? Have you placed your hope in him? And to my fellow believers, I would say this. Do you see what is in store for you? And if you're starting to catch even maybe a slightly grander glimpse of what's in store for you, I would say this. The truth about your tomorrow ought to impact your today. So finally, I want us to look at the resurrection changes how we live. It should, shouldn't it? Our view of eternity, if we believe that there is the resurrection of the dead, that ought to inform the present and how we live now. See, the the, the tragedy is, though, that many Christians have embraced an unbiblical view of the future. So here's a view of the future that's called hedonism, where really there is no future. In verse 32, Paul addresses it when he says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, which was a popular saying. See, this is the view that there's nothing beyond this life. And so if that's the case, we may as well live it up in ways that bring the most personal pleasure in this life. It's kind of a hedonistic view. This approach to life is so widely embraced that many Christians get caught up in thinking this is the only way to live. But Mark Dever puts it this way, it's... It's tempting to live as though the end of verse 32 were ultimate reality because we're surrounded by people who have this attitude towards life and death. And so it's easy to be carried along by them. We can't yet see how glorious our resurrected life will be, but we can see the things of this world. We find it hard to live by faith and not by sight. What he's saying is we observe in front of us people who have no future hope and so they just have to find the greatest personal pleasure at all times in this life because this is all there is, and we observe them and copy their way of living. Paul goes on in verse 33 to say, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul is saying, snap out of it. You're living like those who believe that this life is all there is, and you're adopting the practices of those with conclusions about life that are diametrically opposed to your own. 
Another way that we embrace an unbiblical view of the future is this idea not of hedonism but of dualism, or we could call it mysticism. This, this view of the future as, as, or eternity as this disembodied soul floating around in the clouds. This was a very popular view in the ancient Greco-Roman world, the dominant view, in fact, very popular view in Corinth, and likely the reason why many of them didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, because this was such a dominant view that we would be in the future, these disembodied souls floating around. And I think this has kind of worked its way into the church a lot, right? If you ask, well, what do you picture heaven to be like? A lot of people would start to describe with clouds and sitting on clouds and playing harps of all things. And then, of course, cream cheese. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it's just, isn't that just so lame? Like, no wonder there's so many people not itching for what comes next, because it's like, man, the harp? Like, for, are we for real? Like, I, I, like is, is eternity for me riffing on a harp? Is that what's in store for me? I'm sorry to the one harp player in Chilliwack, if you're here. <laughs> But like, man, that's kind of lame, right? Like a, playing the harp, sitting on a cloud, eating cream cheese. Like, I'm not pumped about that. And therefore, we live that hedonistic life of, man, I got to make the most of this. But see, this view of the afterlife is one of seeing the body as evil and the soul as good. And this causes Christians to embrace unbiblical implications such as our physical bodies don't matter. And the physical world doesn't matter. Only the spiritual matters. But the biblical picture, on the other hand, is that when Christ returns, we will spend our eternity with him in a renewed heavens and a renewed earth in resurrected bodies. What we do with our physical bodies matters. How we treat the planet matters. We get to be a part of God's great renewal project or we're actually working against it. The physical matters, and the spiritual certainly matters as well. And to have that view, what we would call this biblical view, and what, what Paul is fleshing out in 1 Corinthians 15, we could call holism. Not dualism, but holism. Instead, we, like the resurrected Jesus, will be whole persons for all eternity, body and soul. And if that is true, I just want to give us a couple final applications, hope and mission. I, sh I, I think that viewing the fact that resurrected bodies are coming for us should, should fill us with hope and get us on mission. First, this should lead us to live with hope. See, those without Christ are united to and in Adam, we're told in verse 21 on, which means that those of us in Adam, right, that, that, that representative of all humanity, sharing in the death sentence brought about by his work and, and carried on by all of humanity, right, this eternal separation from God is what awaits those in Adam. On the other hand, those who by faith are in Christ will share in the victory brought about by his work, the defeat of sin and death. And since Christ has been raised so too will we. That, that really, truly should fill us with hope here and now as we navigate the complexities of life. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a famous American pastor and radio preacher in the 1950s, and tragically, his wife passed away when they were in their 30s and they had young children. And as he was driving his children to the funeral his daughter asked a very poignant question. 
Daddy, if Jesus died for our sins, why do we still die? What a good question. And at that moment, a large truck roared past them and Barnhouse responded to his daughter, tell me, sweetheart, would you rather be run over by that truck or by its shadow? She responded, by the shadow, because it can't hurt you. And her dad responded, did you know that the truck of death ran over the Lord Jesus? In order that only its shadow would run over us. Your mother has not been overrun by death, but by the shadow of death. And that, sweetheart, is nothing to fear. We're told precisely the same thing in our text this morning. Verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has no sting. Why? Because it's just something that lies between our lives here and our lives in eternity. Death is only for those who will experience the resurrection of the dead. Death is only that thing that lies between living here and our living in all eternity. We have hope because in Christ we have the victory. Jesus was run over by death, so we would merely be run over by the shadow. Lastly, this should cause us to live on mission. The reality of the resurrection should change the way we live. We shouldn't live like those without any hope. We get to live in a way that is, that is so hope-filled, so confident in who Christ is and what he has done that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 32, he's like, if, if the resurrection of the dead didn't happen, then why would I go to Ephesus and be like persecuted and injured and hurt, face hardship? Why suffer for the gospel if this is all there is? What he's saying is, he's arguing that the decision to eat, drink, and party as an ultimate end in itself makes sense if there's no future hope. But since the resurrection is true, leveraging our lives for the gospel is the natural, grateful response. It's what makes sense. Some of us were interacting on this between services a little bit, right? And it's this idea that, that look, we, we, if this is all there is, we must pursue pleasure at all costs, like right now, instant gratification, right now, because this is all there is, I have to live to the full, and at the same time, if this is all there is, I have to absolutely repudiate any kind of suffering because this is all there is, and that is hardship that's not worth having. My time is so limited. So if there's no hope in this life, it's this awkward dance of do everything and also self-preservation because I need to live this thing to the full, and it's that tightrope balance. But see, for the follower of Jesus, it's this. There's assurance, there's hope. 
right? We, we, we can live to the full in a deep, more authentic way now because we, we just trust in the goodness of God. We can live to the fullness of life here and now because we believe in him and our lives are being transformed by him. And so we can live with great joy now, but we can also face suffering now. And it's even worth it to face suffering now that others might know Jesus too because it's for all eternity that we're leveraging our lives. So there's this idea of bucket lists, right? Which is sort of a hedonistic view of, man, I've got to get all of this stuff done because there's nothing after this, or I've got to get all of this stuff down because I'm going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. So I want to get some actual cool stuff done now, right? But see, we don't need to live in like this sort of bucket list kind of way. Why? Because we actually have physical bodies in a physical and spiritual reality that is coming where we will get to, I don't know, maybe go on hot air balloons. We don't need to worry about it for the bucket list now. But see, when I sit with people who are dying, the regrets aren't over, I didn't get enough bucket list stuff done. It's like my family members don't know Jesus. Why didn't I tell them? Why didn't I live more authentically for Christ? Why didn't I leverage it all for the cause of the kingdom. Do you see, if we have this future hope, it informs mission, the living of our lives unto his glory. And that's why Paul concludes the chapter with this charge. Be steadfast, verse 58, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Jesus, oh, I thank you that our faith, Christianity, it rises and falls on the person and work of Jesus where it ought to. Thank you that you came. Thank you that you died defeating our sin on the cross, paying the penalty so we wouldn't have to. And then you rose victorious from the grave, defeating death. And you are the first fruits of those who will rise in you. Jesus, I thank you that this very much is our living hope. This is reality. Lord, I pray that it would inform, I don't mean this in a trite way at all, it would, it would truly inform how we approach everything that comes our way in this life with hope. And I pray, Lord, it would inform our mission as well that we would leverage everything you've entrusted to us for the cause of Christ that others may know. And we pray it in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.